Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of Jesus' trial before the Roman governor Pilate, as told in John 18, 28-40. We talk about the complex interaction of religious authority and political authority, and the ways they often operate to avoid taking responsibility for their actions. We discuss the concept of truth and what truth even means in an age of misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda. And we wrestle with what it means to follow a king who refuses to wield the power of death over and against the enemy, but instead submits to death in self-giving love, giving witness to the ultimate power of life. Can the kingdoms of the earth follow this path of love? According to this text, they can't. But can we? That is the question. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am fine. You look like that question surprised you, even though it's exactly the same question for like three years now. I know. Well, I was thinking in my head how I was going to ask you, and then I forgot it was your turn to ask me. And my way was going to involve calling you Bobbio. But then (laughs) I was so surprised when you asked me and just in a very normal normal fashion, as opposed to a crazy fashion, which was... The direction I would have gone. Yeah, well, let's do let's let's do it the other way. You okay. start. Hey, Bobbio, <laughs> hey. what's up? Hey, what's up? my name for you is Amos, which is not as fun as Bobbio. My name for you isn't really Bobbio, though. No, you've never called me that before until just now. No, yeah, but yeah, sure. but I liked that it. it was premeditated. <laughs> like even thinking about that. <laughs> ah. Today I'm gonna call him Bobbio. <laughs> That's right. And he's going to be so surprised and we're just going to see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, Amos, this week, my kids are both in preschool for the first time ever. There is a prayer for this moment in the Jewish tradition called the Shehechianu. Yeah. Thanks yeah. God for bringing us to this moment. <laughs> I feel yeah. like it is appropriate. You have been sustained unto this very moment and what a moment it is. That's fantastic, Bobby. Yeah. Hey, how does the Shekhyanu go? Baruch HaTadonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shekhyanu V'kiyamanu V'higyanu L'azman Hazeh That was beautiful. I love that. That's for you, Bobby. Thank you. That was a beautiful, (laughs) beautiful. (laughs) Beautiful blessing. Beautiful blessing. It was. Oh, what are we reading today? Yeah, the text is less beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> that we're reading today. As you know, we are in this cycle of the narrative lectionary in the Gospel of John. And this year in the narrative lectionary cycle really lingers in the last kind of 24 hours of Jesus's life for a long time. Last week, we had a trial before Annas, the father-in-law of the Jewish high priest. Mm-hmm. This week, the scene shifts to a trial before Pilate, who is the Roman governor of the province of Judea. 
So we're in John chapter 18, verses 28 to 40, and I am reading the Common English Bible. The Jewish leaders led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Roman governor's palace. It was early in the morning, so that they could eat the Passover, the Jewish leaders wouldn't enter the palace. Entering the palace would have made them ritually impure. So Pilate went out to them and asked, What charge do you bring against this man? They answered, If he had done nothing wrong, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate responded, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jewish leaders replied, The law doesn't allow us to kill anyone. And then a parenthetical in this translation, this was so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled when he indicated how he was going to die. Does your translation have the, does it read the Jewish leaders or the Jews? This just, my translation, the NRSV just says they. Oh, interesting. In verse 28. Mm-hmm. It says they took Jesus. What about in verse 31? In verse 31, it says the Jews. Yeah, so we noticed this dynamic, I think, previously. We definitely noticed it in the last meeting of the Bible Worm Collaborative, that the NRSV, which you're reading, just translates hoi eudaioi, which mm-hmm. John uses all the time, as the Jews, kind mm-hmm. of no matter who he's referring to. John is, is very loose with that term. The CEB, which I'm reading, has made an interpretive decision here, which I, I think is a good one, that in this text we're talking about not, you know, Joe, Jewish person who yeah. lives down the street, but actually the chief priests, Pharisees, the, the leaders of the Jewish people, which seems mm-hmm. like an important distinction to make in my that mind. That seems like a really important distinction to me, especially because, as we've noted several times, many of his followers are also Jews. Yeah, I mean, Jesus is a Jew. Right, so right. So to, to only refer to the Jews as the bad guys is... Yeah a narrative decision that, you know, and, and there'll be a couple places along the way that I, th- I think we'll start to see more clearly. Like the narrative is really pointing very clearly at who is morally culpable yeah. for what's about to transpire. That's an important, I hope you'll bring that up as, as it occurs because that's so important. One of the things that's going to be interesting to me, and we talked about it a little bit last time, was when you just talk about the Romans and the Jews, you end up with like these sort of monolithic us against them or us in league with them or whatever. But when you start to say, okay, there's there's Jewish people who are quite diverse in their own regard. There's Jewish leaders who have different positions as well. There's mm-hmm. a Roman elite like Pilate, but he's in Judea. So he's not exactly the same as like the Romans in Rome working for the emperor. So you start to see like, okay, there's at least like four categories of people. There's Romans in Rome, there's Romans in Judea, there's Jewish elites, there's Jewish common folks. And though once you start to talk about those dynamics, then some of this, like what's really going on here, what's at stake here, I think gets a lot more interesting and a lot more relevant mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. What, what's going mm-hmm. on today. Yeah, no, I think I think that's really true. And I think that observation of that happening in this text is also a good reminder to us now today in our own world that it's never so simple as a people is equated to its leader or there is some kind of monolithic people, you know, acting in a certain way, no matter what it might look like in our 
I don't know, various media sources, whatever we get our information yeah. now, that is never, that's, I'm just going to say that's never, that's never true. Yeah. I just, I don't think that's ever true. I think that's exactly right. And I appreciate you making that connection. It just reminds me of images that we're seeing these days about people in Russia protesting against Putin. Yeah. And so very clearly there are Russians who do, don't agree with what is happening, what that leadership right. is doing. Same in the, in the U.S. at various points along the way. Yeah. And so to keep in mind, I think that's so important that yeah. the people and their leaders are not the same. Yeah. Okay, we get an, a notice here in the very beginning of this text about the Jewish leaders going to Pilate's palace but not going in. And John mm -hmm. is very careful to talk about ritual impurity with regard to that. Can you shed any light on what's going on there? I mean, so it, I don't know exactly what kind of ritual impurity they're concerned about. The note in my Jewish annotated New Testament says they are just keeping their distance from areas that are occupied by Gentiles prior to Passover yeah. so as not to encounter anything that might defile them. I honestly don't, I don't know enough historically about what might have been in the palace that would have caused ritual defilement. For me, that note is more a reminder that they are headed into a really sacred yeah. time. You know, they're, they're headed into, you know, this is sort of a silly example, but you know, as we've been uh, managing all these sort of COVID waves in our community. I know my husband, who's pretty uh, cautious, is particularly cautious when he knows he's coming up to something, whatever yeah. it is, a visit or a service or a something that, like, okay, it's never great to be sick. Maybe it's never great to be ritually defiled, but there are moments when you have to draw back from everything else in order to be prepared for that thing. And they're, they have entered that zone, like that yeah. way of thinking about things. And that, for me, just really draws out, like, the urgency <laughs> they felt to deal with this situation right now. Yeah. Like, right now. Really, this can't, <laughs> this can't wait? Yeah. You have to do this right now? <laughs> yeah. And that is apparently what they felt. Yeah. That's so helpful, Amy, in that comparison to COVID precautions, I think is a, is a really useful way of talking about ritual purity and impurity to people who don't really think in those categories, among which I include myself. We remember that in the Gospel of John, that these events are taking place 24 hours earlier than they take place in the Synoptic Gospels. So in this Gospel, this is the morning before the Passover meal. And we're headed into a Sabbath as well in John's mm -hmm. gospel. And so these are the Jewish leaders who are responsible for the religious life of the community. Like it makes sense that they're being particularly cautious in yeah. this moment because it's not just yeah. personal, but it's also communal and like their role, right. yes. the roles they mm -hmm. have to play in the community. Mm -hmm. Another thing I think this does in an interesting way is it demarcates the difference between the leadership of the Jewish community and the Romans. Like there, there's actually a dividing line in this text that cannot be crossed. They can each come mm. out and talk on one side of the line, but they mm -hmm. can't cross over or, they, or they, at least they won't cross over it. 
mm-hmm. and that line is kind of marked by the religiously important purity laws that distinguish these these two groups. Yeah. Can I ask you a question even even before that in this section? Yeah. The text doesn't tell us anything that happened at Caiaphas's yeah, yeah. place. That's right. Like it says they brought him there, right? They started with his father-in-law, Anas or Annas, and then they brought him to the high priest, and then they brought him to Pilate. Do you think we should? I mean, do you, does, I guess that just means nothing happened. I mean, not nothing happened, but nothing of import happened. I just, I think it's a strange Skip. It is strange that they take the time to mention back in verse 24 that they sent him to Caiaphas, and then Caiaphas doesn't do anything at all except sort of forward him to Pilate. We talked a little bit last time about Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, being the power behind the power. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, I think, emphasizing that Caiaphas doesn't have really any power in this situation. But Mm, I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know why they think that's important, but somehow the official structures are not being followed. It's the sort of familial connections that are yeah. at work here. It, ju- it strikes me sort of as you're saying that, that it's another way that throughout this narrative, it seems like there's just a whole lot of sort of passing the buck. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Or oh, someone else decide. No, you decide. No, you decide. No, yeah. you do something with him. Like, we, you know, no one, you know, no one seems, I, I don't know. There's a lot of passing the buck. There is. So it passes passes through the buck of Caiaphas, who just passes, just forwards it on. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's what exactly what Pilate's going to try to do, or at least that's one way yeah. of reading what Pilate's going to try yeah. to do. And he doesn't do it quite so successfully. You know, it's interesting to think about why that is. And, you know, there's theological reasons that we could come up with, like this is the son of God and nobody wants to mess with that, you know, even yeah. if they don't believe it. I think that maybe the more helpful way for me to think about it is Passover was a really dangerous time for Jewish-Roman relations. The Passover, as you well know, celebrates the freedom of the Israelites, the Jewish people from Mm. the imperial oppressors in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Here now, we have a situation where there are imperial oppressors in Jerusalem. There are Jews arriving from all over the world. It was it was kind of a moment where if there was going to be an uprising, mm. sort of a nationalistic uprising, Passover was a key time. And so everybody, like nobody wants to set off the power of the people, right? Every, mm-hmm. Everybody. And so they want to get rid of Jesus for various reasons that, that we'll talk about, but nobody wants to be the one who is responsible for having done that. I think because they don't know politically what's going to come next. That's such a helpful framing, I think, and a helpful reminder for just the the general, you know, spiritual backdrop and political backdrop for this this moment, uh, you know, on the calendar, that it's not just heightened holiness. Right. It is also a story of, you know, breaking free from the from the bonds of another Government and um, yeah, that does seem like like people might be on eggshells. Yeah. One of the things that's kind of interesting in this text, I mean, I don't know if it goes any place, but there's a talk here about taking Jesus to the Roman governor's palace in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. 
the Roman governor Pilate actually lived, his, his official residence was in Caesarea Maritima, which is over on the Mediterranean coast. Beautiful, beautiful place if you've ever been there. I mean, it's beautiful even if you haven't been there. Yeah, <laughs> even more If beautiful. you've been there, you yeah. would know that it's beautiful. Yeah. But he spent part of the year in Jerusalem in sort of his winter residence. And oftentimes he would come to Jerusalem around the time of Passover. I think because of the reasons we were talking about. Yeah. You know, you want to have the Roman. Yeah. You want to have the authorities mm-hmm. present so everybody sees. And so this is not his normal place. Uh, and so there's a little bit of a sense that Pilate is, I don't know, is he's out of place. He's, he's in a particularly vulnerable, vulnerable is not exactly right, but you know what I mean? Like normally he's in the sort of Roman city yeah. where he, that he's the, you know, the, the dominant figure. Now he's in Jerusalem where the temple is kind of the dominant thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pilate's first question is, what charge do you bring? And their answer is, if he hadn't done anything, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. <laughs> what? What do you make of that? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I sort of, I, I don't know what to make of it other than sort of going back to the, the conversation we were having just a moment ago about how every, every may they seem to be on eggshells, like they don't. It's hard for me to imagine truly feeling so clear and convicted that this man, Jesus, is a danger to our people, which that is my understanding of what these leaders believe. Right or wrong, they seem to for real believe this. Why don't they just say it? Yeah. I don't, I just, I don't, it seems just cowardly to me. Just say what you think. Come on, guys. But they don't say it. They say he he did <laughs> he did something. Why don't you figure out what it was? See you later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is so interesting that they they withhold. And you know, if you go back to chapter 11 when they kind of decide they're going to kill Jesus after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, what yeah. they said is this man does so many miraculous things that the people are going to follow him. And then the Romans are going to destroy us. Right. But there's something about, I think there's something about that acknowledgement that Jesus has power over death, according to John 11, and that they're afraid that that power over death is going to result in Roman violence, that maybe I kind of get why they won't say that. It just seems like if they're really trying to play into the hand, like if they're trying to make things white with the Romans... Why don't they just say, we believe this man is a danger to your authority. Mm. Now you figure out whether you think that's true. Like, it seems like that would really put you right in the pocket of the Roman leaders. But they don't, they don't do it. Maybe this is the forever story of what it's like to be in politics, is that, you know, often, even now, if you listen to politicians, try they try to sort of speak out of both sides of their mouth because they're trying not to upset, yeah, and you know any of the various constituencies around a particular issue. Yeah, that's actually really helpful, Amy, and it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit ago, where you know there's a there is buck passing happening here, and I think yeah. a reasonable interpretation of it is that they're afraid of what the people are going to do, and mm-hmm. so the. The Jewish leaders don't want Jesus around, but they don't want to be seen as being responsible. 
Yeah. And it turns out pilots kind of have the same, kind of the same issue. Hmm. So Pilate pushes back on them by saying, judge him according to your own law. Mm-hmm. So he, Pilate pushes it back, to which the response is, the law doesn't allow us to kill anyone. What do you make of that? What's going on right there? Well, first of all, we've just gone from he's a criminal to he needs to be executed yeah. <laughs> really <laughs> yeah, quickly. Really quickly. Like we just, yeah. you know, jumped right to the right to the end of that. I mean, whether or not the Jews were allowed to impose the death penalty is, I think, a scholarly debate. Yeah. This is one point where it seems like the narrative is is trying to keep the even even though the way the story plays out, it seems pretty clear that it wasn't the Jews who actually carried out the execution because this was not a way that yeah. Jews, this was a Roman form of execution. It's a way to keep the Jews front and center as the ones who made this happen. Like we're just, at, it, it seems almost like they're just asking Pilate to carry out the act because their hands are tied. Yeah. But just... I don't know. And I don't know if their hands are actually tied. That's an important point, Amy. And, you know, there is a debate among scholars about the degree to which the Jews had the right to enforce their own Torah law when it calls for the death penalty or not. And there are Mm -hmm. scholars on, on both sides of that question. I think that one place where there is agreement is that to the extent that the Jewish leaders did have the power to exercise the death penalty, it was only for religious violations of the religious statutes of the Torah, not for political intrigue, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which the Romans would have taken care of. They, they punish the political rebels. Mm-hmm. I think the issue you're raising about who are we trying to blame and scapegoat, I think that's a really important issue. I also think that this text is in an interesting way shifting the conversation out of the religious realm into the political one to say mm-hmm. Jesus actually, the reason Jesus needs to be executed is because he is politically dangerous, not because he is religiously a, a religious violator. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe John mm-hmm. thinks both of those things, but it's interesting that, this, that the way this dynamic kind of plays out in this text, at least on my reading of it, it's pushing the political problem. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, and the Jewish leaders... In all, and pretty much in anybody's understanding, couldn't do anything about that. They, they would actually mm-hmm. need the Romans to carry out a, a political execution. It's so crazy. I love hearing you talk about it that way, Bobby, because it, it really just resonates so much with the way that I hear, you know, in our, our everyday mundane world, the way that we make these kinds of justice-related decisions. And yeah. so much of it comes down to like, whose jurisdiction is different things? And is there a specific statute? Like there are things where a whole bunch of people can look at it and say, that's wrong. But thinking it's wrong is not sufficient. You have to figure out the sort of legal details of it. And so thinking about this in that way, like what are the, I mean, I I don't know what all the possible statutes and jurisdictions were and I don't know if they know which of them they're trying to use or just trying to say, like, there's got to be something. <laughs> there's got to be something in here. Yeah. And that, that's really, like, grounded. Grounded thinking for me that's helpful. 
Now, what John says in verse 32 is that the reason the Romans have to execute Jesus is because they they crucify people. Mm-hmm. And whereas a Jewish, Jewish execution presumably would take place by stoning or some other means than than by crucifixion, which was kind of a uniquely Roman thing to do. Mm-hmm. Do you know what John's after there? I mean, there is earlier in John, I don't think we read this part. In John 12, there's a verse 33, and it says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Oh, the verse before that, when I am lifted up from the earth. Yeah. So I, so maybe that's like image imagery of a crucifixion. I don't, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's yeah, what I, John's getting at. The t- that seems right to me. And, you know, it's one of these things that John, we've been talking all the way through about how John plays with multiple meanings of things. And so this idea of being lifted up off the earth, on the one hand can mean he's going to be exalted. Yeah to heaven. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it can mean he's going to be lifted up on a cross. And for John, these two things are the same thing. It, it is exactly his being lifted up on a cross and then being resurrected. Mm-hmm. That is his exaltation. And so for John's logic, I think you're exactly right. It has to happen by crucifixion. It doesn't explain historically why, what this dynamic is, but it puts a theological layer on it to say, We've got to get Jesus on onto a cross. He's got to mm-hmm. die that way. And the Romans mm-hmm. are the only ones who can do that. So there's a theological overlay onto whatever this political background might be. Yeah. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts, and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now, back to this week's podcast. Okay, so let's see what happens next. Picking up in verse 33. Pilate went back into the palace. He summoned Jesus and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own, or have others spoken to you about me? Pilate responded, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your nation and its chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, My kingdom doesn't originate from this world. 
If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have been arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom isn't from here. So you are a king? Pilate said. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Pilate asked. There's so much going on in this text that's, bo- you know, so much theological, philosophical, all of the things. Where do you think Pilate comes up with this initial question, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, I share Jesus's response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, what is this a question out of the blue? Have Jews brought, have the Jewish leaders brought other people to him that have claimed to be king of the Jews? Like, you know, this... This claim to kingship or messiahship is not not unique to Jesus over the centuries. Yeah. I don't know why else he would have started with that question. To me, it picks up on what we were just talking about, which was that there are sort of spheres of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And the one mm-hmm. for which Pilate thinks he has responsibility is to put down anybody who's a political threat. Mm-hmm. And so that's the question he needs to know the answer to. Are you claiming to be a legitimate leader of the Jewish people or are you not? And it seems like the answer to that question maybe is what Pilate thinks he needs in order to decide whether this is his jurisdiction or, or if it isn't. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting that there actually was no one who went by the title of king of the Jews at this point historically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My understanding, is this right, is that maybe Herod the Great had permission to go by title king of the Jews, but he's been dead since Jesus was born, basically. Mm-hmm. And then in, in this period, there's no one with that title. Is that, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting, like, that this is the, like, he's not a direct threat to anybody who actually has that title. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the Romans don't allow that title to be used suggests that they think there's something dangerous about somebody holding that title. We need, we need to be clear what the lines of authority are here. Right. And, and, you know, they're not, they're not, what is the word? I want to say autonomous. That's not the word. They're not their own nation at this point. You know, they are under the control of the Romans. So I could see how the Romans might say, okay, you can have leaders for the Jewish people. You can have even, you know, you can have religious leaders. Maybe you can have some local government structure, but a king, yeah, it's, I could see why the Romans would be concerned yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we talked just a, just briefly about Jesus's response. Who told you to say that? <laughs> or however you want to tr- mm-hmm. understand that. And Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. Your, your people told me. Well, he actually doesn't say that. He says, I mean, basically what he's saying is, I don't know why you're here. Like, can, right. can you help me with that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's one of these things where like you're the principal of the school and a kid walks into your office and you don't know why they were sent to you, but you know someone thinks they did something wrong. And so maybe you start with what seems like the most likely scenario, but you really don't know. Like, like Pilate seems really, really not to know. I mean, how would he know? Jesus's responses, on the one hand, are a little evasive. Like, who told you to ask me that? But on the other hand, you know, in verse 36, he, he picks up the language my kingdom doesn't originate from this world. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly that he's trying to avoid the issue. What I don't know. How do you, how do you read Jesus's 
responses here. Yeah, it's so, it's like Jesus doesn't say, I'm not king of the Jews, but it's more like, I'm not king of the Jews in the way that you think of a king. Yeah. You know, like I'm I'm talking about something totally different, you know, in, in this way that throughout this gospel and some other gospels, it's like the word that you have always used in this way, I am using to mean something else. So it might be that it's the right word, king or kingdom, but it's not, but it means something else, which in some ways is like not a helpful answer because if it means something else, then I, then language has just failed us. Like, yeah. You know, so (laughs) what are we actually talking about here if we're using the same word and mean different things by it? But he, I feel like he gives Pilate more than, you know, some other places in the text where words are being used in a new way and people are just expected to keep up with it. You know, if my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews if my kingdom were in this world. Yeah. Which, of course, is exactly what Simon Peter tries to do yes. in 18. Yes. You know, is like, okay, I get how to do this. I believe you are, yeah, I don't know if he would say king of the Jews, but whatever. I believe in you and I believe in your power. And what that means is I will fight for you. And Jesus, you know, keeps telling him to stand down. Um, but yeah, they're they're in a world that this this kingdom here on earth, that's what it means to be king, is that people will fight for you physically. Yeah. And Jesus is talking about something else. You that's there's so so much that was helpful in that, Amy. I really love the connection back to Peter. And we we asked a little bit last time, like why, like what is Jesus why does he correct Peter there? And we you know, we had some ideas about Jesus doesn't yeah. like violence or something, but this really puts a very fine point on it. My kingdom is about some other kind of way of being a kingdom. And it does, yeah. your way of being a king in a kingdom involves the use of violence to secure your ends. Mine explicitly rejects that whole idea. So yeah, maybe I'm a king, but it's not at all what you mean. Maybe I have a kingdom, but it isn't mm-hmm. your kind of a kingdom. Right. The language that he uses, I'm curious. And you said my kingdom isn't, uh, what did you say? In the world. My, um, let's see. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Yeah. To me, that preposition is super important. Yes. Jesus's kingdom is in the world, right? Yes. Jesus has embodied it, I think in the foot washing actually, and all throughout his ministry. But in that text we talked about a few weeks ago, where Jesus lowers himself, washes the feet of the other, honors and respects those who societally don't have honor and respect, and says, love one another as I have loved you. That is the essence of Jesus's kingdom, which is unfolding in the world. But it is not from the world. In the sense that like human beings, and this is true then and it's true now, the way we know to structure ourselves is by threatening violence over and against other people in order to secure ourselves. And Jesus is saying, that's not, if that's what we mean by kingdom, then that's not what this is. Gosh, I was just thinking as you were talking, like, (laughs) this is a really maybe sort of 
I'll just make that observation and then we can move on from it because it's kind of large. But it's hard to be humans and enact a kingdom that is not from this world. Yeah. No wonder we mess it up all the time. Yeah. I mean, that. I guess that that is the whole life of faith. Like that is the whole constant attempt and course correction and yeah. missteps that, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And I mean, the problem is it'll get you killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is like, yeah. I mean, spoiler alert, how this thing turns out, right? Yeah. If you follow Jesus, it results in death at the hands of the empire. And which is why when we talked last time about why does Jesus tell his disciples to go away? Yeah. Well, it's because you've got two kind of options. One is you become violent like Peter did in the garden. Mm-hmm. Two is you become scared and yeah. lose your way in the presence of power. And so until Jesus is resurrected and you can see that there is life on the other side see. of death, yeah. You can't enter in, which suggests, you know, that in theory, we Christians anyway, now that we believe that Jesus was resurrected on the other side of death, we ought to be able to enact this other kind of kingdom in the face of violent, of a violent power, knowing that the death that the empire wields is, is not the ultimate end. And so we love even when violence is enacted against us. But that is so hard. And clearly, the vast majority of Christian history has not been anything like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I mean, the vast majority of, yes, human history and Christian history yeah. has not been that. Yeah. You know, in church history conversations, it's Constantine, the emperor in the fourth century, is always seen as the sort of shifting point, although it's probably, you know. There have been shifting points all throughout yeah. history, but once Christianity became the religion of the empire, now you've got like internal yeah. to the logic yeah. of empire and kingdom of heaven. They are fundamentally incompatible. So how on yeah. earth would you think that you could have a Christian empire? Which is in, in some ways, part of what was striking to me about this, this little section of text is that Jesus's words in in some way seem to compile like my kingdom not of this world. So okay, so yeah. you're not a direct you're not like launching a military threat against yeah. us. And yet, if people really are t- you know, were to buy into this idea of a kingdom that is not from this world that Jesus is, you know, embodying on earth, that's actually a huge threat. Yeah. to the, the Roman system, to any governmental mm-hmm. system. You said that so militarily. well, Amy. And, you know, there's a debate in this text about whether this text is radically anti-empire mm-hmm. or whether it is kind of a quietistic acceptance of the realities of empire. Mm-hmm. And you named that really, really well. Because on the one hand, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to do anything violent to you. So then mm-hmm. the empire is like, great. On the other hand, Jesus is saying it is in the very nature of God's rule that empires are going to fail, but not in the way you think. And so it is radically anti-empire, but the empire seems kind of okay with it. And mm-hmm. that's actually very familiar in, in my experience to, to the way oftentimes we, we try to live out the gospel today. Is it's, it's not a threat. And maybe, and maybe it shouldn't be a threat. Like Jesus is not threatening. Right. 
in the way that we're accustomed to thinking about threats. I don't know. I go back and forth with John. Sometimes I think John is radically beautiful gospel that says we must resist the power of empire. And sometimes I think John is sort of pie in the sky when you die. Mm -hmm. And how does that help anybody in, in the real world? I had this image in my head while you were talking of like a, a hologram almost that you like, is a hologram the right word? You like, you turn it at different angles and you can see such different yeah. things. I'm going to have to sit with that one for a long time because those would be very, very different directions to point in. Pilate's response is, so you are a king. I, mm-hmm. The inflection there is important and I don't know how to inflect it. Yeah. So you are a king or so you are a king? Like, I don't don't know what you just said. Or like, oh, I get what you just said. Right, right, right. I asked you a straightforward question and you said some stuff. So I'm going to go back to my question. (laughs) And Jesus dodges him again. You say that I am a king. Mm -hmm. How do you understand Jesus's meaning there? You say that I am a king. Do you think that he is saying that you have named me correctly? I am a king and you got it. Or do you think he's saying, you said that, but I didn't say it because it's wrong? Mm. Or like, what is Jesus? What do you, how do you read Jesus? Yeah. And then, and then what does the, this question of being a king have to do with testifying to the truth? Yes. Like how, I guess I read it as like, I'm not interested in the question, in the king question. Yeah. So you can say whatever you want. What I'm interested in is to testify to the truth. Eh? (laughs) Yeah, that seems right to me. And you know, Jesus has never in the Gospel of John referred to himself as a king. There have been times when other people have referred to him as a king. Or in a text that we didn't read, after Jesus feeds the multitude in John 6, they try to catch him and mm-hmm. make him the king and right. he runs away. Well, and clearly that kind of king, he it does not. Yeah. He's not that kind of king. Right. And so I think that's why Jesus won't use the word. Yeah. Is because if that's the only word we got, like that yeah. word's not going to do it. Like I am a king in the sense of like I have great authority, but whenever anybody says that, they mean somebody who wields they authority as power else. over that results in violence, and, and I'm not that. And so if that's the only word we got, as you were saying earlier, then, you know, you can call me that because that's the only word you've got, but I'm not going to accept that because what I really care about is this other thing. Mm-hmm. Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which, mm-hmm. which are much bigger claims than I am a yes. king. right. But also politically more abstract and, and interestingly abstract. not as threatening. Yes, Pilate's response is, what is truth? Mm, I love it. Can you talk about what you, like, why do you love that response? I love it that, and I don't, you'll have to tell me if this is just a translational issue, but Jesus says, I am here to testify to the truth. Mm -hmm. And then again says, everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate doesn't say, what is the truth? There's no definite Mm. article, it becomes this much bigger yes. abstract. Yeah. Like that's 
that's where I start to see, and I don't, I don't know if, if it's implied that Pilate sees it this way, but that's where I really see almost like two worlds moving in different directions. Yes. Like you can say, what is the truth that sounds like it's a simple thing, like something is true or it isn't. Yeah. And that's the question I would have expected Yeah, Pilate like tell me the thing here. that is true. Right. You're here yeah. to testify to the truth. Tell me, okay, tell me the truth. But what is truth is like really a, it's like a bottomless pit yes. of a question. I don't know. I feel like at that point, Pilate is sort of moving into into the kinds of abstractions that Jesus has used before to speak about himself. Yeah. I don't know if it's intent. You know, I, I mean, I don't know if if John's suggesting that Pilate really gets that, but what is truth? Yeah. It's so interesting because that is that is such a big and abstract question. And then my first thought was, especially reading this text in this historical moment, like what is truth? Like there are so many voices out there claiming to speak truth. Many of them are intentionally speaking misinformation or disinformation. Right. right. And so that's one thing. Fine. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes people who think they're telling something that's true or saying something that is partially true or incompletely yeah. true. or yeah. And so the question of like, well, what is truth? And in our moment, historical moment, it feels like people have kind of said like, ah, like, I don't know what truth is. Nobody knows what truth is. And therefore, like, let's just kind of discard the notion. In the mouth of a Roman official, like the Romans were famous for their propaganda techniques, right? They are the model for the ways in which empires today continue to enforce power is to say, you know, we talk about our military victories as bringing peace to the world. And we, we talk about, you know, the Pax Romana and we, we don't talk about the like constant wars that are taking place around our borders. We talk about the Caesar as a God, you know, there's a propaganda machine that upholds the Roman empire as yeah. As is the case yeah, in other empires as well. And to say what is truth, I think is, I mean, a kind of an honest thing for a Roman official to say, like, ah, you know, truth schmooth. <laughs> like, mm. we, we, we need to say the things that keep us in power. Mm-hmm. Who cares about the truth? Mm, I love that. So it's not so much like, like Pilate has become intrigued by this abstract concept of what Jesus might represent, but more... Like, like almost, I'd, I I hardly believe in the idea of truth. Like we we create. There is no abstract truth. There's no absolute truth. We create truth, you know, as the government or the formation of stories or the writer de- the writer of narratives or the you know we. It is all shaped. There's no untainted truth. Yeah. And so we might as well shape it. I think you can read Pilate absolutely that way as a, as a master propagandist. You can also read him as a deeply philosophical thinker. Yeah. Who's the first sort of way we, we were thinking about that is let's talk about the essence of truth. Mm-hmm. There is such a thing. And let's, let's ponder that. I'm, I'm suspicious. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I tend to say he's discarding that notion. But I think he can be read either way. Now, th- we get this language in here. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice, which takes me back to the Good Shepherd text. Is that where it takes your head or does it take your head someplace else? 
It hadn't taken my head anywhere until you asked the question, but I think that makes sense. Yeah. So then there's this sense that there are people who are trying to lead you out into the world, and they're telling you stuff. Y'all are sheep, and it's only if you recognize my voice that you actually are living in, in what is true. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that goes anywhere, but to me that's an interesting connection. Well, it, what's, what stands out to me in what you just said is, is again, this idea that first you accept tr- the truth, and that causes you to listen to Jesus's voice. And also, Jesus is here to testify to the truth. So it's like this, you know, chicken and egg kind of like cycle that that you listen to know what the truth is, but you have to accept the truth in order to be bought into listening. Yeah. And now I'm thinking about the way the truth and the and the light that Jesus yes. is is somehow the embodiment of truth. I think that is the crucial point, Amy. Pilate's question, what is truth, is a fundamental misunderstanding, according to the Gospel of John, because the right question is, who is truth? And Jesus has already told us that. I am truth. And so that, like, the content of truth is less urgent than the embodiment of truth, Mm -hmm. which is Jesus Mm -hmm. for the Gospel of John. So once you've said, what is the truth, you've already missed the point. Yeah, it's like the conversation about kingship in some way. Like there is an earthly idea of what a king is. And, you know, sure, you can use that word, but that's not really what Jesus is talking about. Yeah. And similarly, our earthly conception of what is truth, you know, fact or fiction, that's not really what we're talking about. So then it's we're back to one lives in relationship with Jesus. One embodies Jesus's way of life. One follows in the truth of the way. Mm-hmm. and the life, even if one doesn't, like, you couldn't, like, write a term paper, <laughs> you know, about what is the truth, but you have, you have a, you're in relationship with truth. And so you live in that relationship, you are already living the truth. And so I do think it's cyclical. You, you listen to the voice, you know truth, you know truth, you listen to the voice. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. It's mutually reinforcing. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at Pilate's then response after he, he says, what is truth? And that's sort of the end of that bit of interaction. Mm -hmm. Verse 39, after Pilate said this, he returned to the Jewish leaders and said, I find no grounds for any charge against him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner for you at Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted, not this man, give us Barabbas. Barabbas was an outlaw. This doesn't make sense to me. Say more about that. If Pilate finds no case against him, then it seems that there would be no reason to keep him. Mm-hmm. If there's this, if they have this agreement that the Jews get to pick someone to release on at Passover, which that's very strange, but okay, great. It seems like you'd be picking from among the people who the Roman government wants to hold, but the Roman government hasn't found a case against Jesus. Am I missing something? No, I mean, I think that's a really insightful and important question. And, you know, we talked a little bit at the very beginning about who is this gospel trying to blame for the death of Jesus? Yeah. 
And this actually cuts in two ways, right? Because on the one hand, the Jews have the option. Pilate says, there's no charge. Let me give him back to you. And they say no, the Jewish leaders. And so they're responsible. But at the same time, now also Pilate has acknowledged that Jesus is innocent of any wrongdoing. And yet he's going to execute him when he could have simply done what you're saying, which is let him go. So for me, this little incident is important in the Gospel of John because it, like now everybody is responsible for the death of Jesus. Mm. The Romans Mm -hmm. could have done something different. The Jewish leaders could have done something different. But because they wanted to, because they were afraid to, I, I don't know what their motivations are. But at the end of the day, they are both now responsible for what's going to happen to Jesus, whom everybody in the text, most especially Pilate, like it's clear to me that Pilate thinks he's innocent. It's yeah. less clear to me what the Jewish leaders think, actually. They definitely yeah. think he's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe Pilate ends up being more culpable in a sense because he has figured out that there's no reason and yet he's too afraid, too indifferent, too mm-hmm. morally whatever, you know. I don't know. Does anything in there help? Yeah, it does. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, you just said maybe if he's too afraid – do you think he is afraid to upset the Jews at Passover and that releasing Jesus back would upset them and maybe, you know, like we said, this is sort of a delicate time of year? Are, are you thinking along those lines? I think that is an entirely reasonable way to read it. Mm-hmm. People think of the Romans as having sort of absolute power. They can do whatever they want. But in fact— Pilate was in kind of a precarious situation, as we've talked about. He had a fairly small contingent of Roman soldiers. He's at Passover, a nationalistic festival, when there's Jews from all over the world there. Like, it's dangerous. And he he might well be afraid of what the Jewish leaders and, you know, the, the popular folks riled up by their leaders might be capable of. And so he doesn't want to mess with that. I, I think that's a reasonable reading. I think it's also possible just to say Pilate doesn't actually care. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't care, y'all. Like, I got things to do. Right. This I'm going afternoon. back to bed. You woke me up very early for this. Yeah. And I don't know that the gospel settles that sort of those two possible readings for us. I mean, thinking about the possibility that Pilate is is a little bit, you know, kowtowing or like tiptoeing around anything that might cause controversy by not releasing the man that these Jewish leaders just brought to him, and then putting that together with the idea that the Jewish leaders were afraid of Jesus in part because they thought the Rome, he would cause the Romans to attack them. Yeah. It just adds this sort of other level of like tragedy or almost like yeah. comic tragedy. Like they're both afraid of what the other group might do. Amy, that's so insightful. I love that. And so now we're in, you know, the conversation is when the world functions according to self-interested violence, everybody's afraid all the time. Everybody's afraid all the time. And no one will, no one says what they're afraid of. So nobody can, so there's no other way to sort it out, you know, because everyone's sort of posturing and trying to figure out what, what's going to keep things calm and, you know, that's tragic. It is tragic. And I'll also, I, I find it so helpful. Like, I mean, it's so true to my own experience of the world. 
And then if, if the question of this text, which I think is a good one, is like, who in the end, who's culpable for this? Mm-hmm. Now the answer has become something like human nature, right? The, yeah. the way that people organize ourselves and use violence and instill fear and are cowardly about things, that's what causes Jesus's death. And it happens with the Romans and it happens with the Jewish leaders. It happens with mm-hmm. all of us. And now it's an indictment of the way humans live more instead of being an indictment of a particular group of people. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody really knows. We don't get any uh, description of this practice. In the other gospels, the Romans say, we, the Romans have a practice where we do this. Here, mm-hmm. P- Pilate says, you, the Jews have a practice. We don't get any reference to it anywhere outside of the New Testament gospels, which doesn't mean it wasn't true, yeah. but, but it doesn't mean it was. Like, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. But in the narrative logic of the Gospel of John, here's an opportunity for the Jewish leaders to accept Jesus back. Pilate gets out of his thing without losing face. The Jewish leaders mm-hmm. take Jesus back and acknowledge his innocence. Instead, they ask for Barabbas. In the other Gospels, Pilate gives them a choice. Here's your two choices, Jesus or Barabbas. And they choose Barabbas. In this mm-hmm. Gospel, it's like, here's Jesus. And the Jewish leaders say, no, Barabbas. Like, they're the ones who introduced Barabbas into the conversation. And then in the CEB, we get a little, it's in parentheses in the CEB, Barabbas was an outlaw. Mm-hmm. A bandit in my translation. I like that one better. I picture him like. <laughs> like with a little, like hamburglers. He was in my. To totally hamburglar. <laughs> yes. That's who you want released. Great. Yeah. I would like hamburglar. Yeah. I would get you hamburglar would hamburglar. Ham- hamburger. I mean, if my he choices were hamburger or Jesus, like I hope I would yeah, pick okay, Jesus. Yeah, okay, fine. But if it was but like, like hamburger or someone else, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would pick hamburger. He's a lovable, lovable bandit. He just wants his burgers. <laughs> I don't know how to get back from there to Barabbas. Okay, well, but seriously, let's talk about crucifixion. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is. I mean, what do you make of this little interaction and the and this the selection of Barabbas instead of Jesus? I mean, the way that I understand, I don't know what they really mean by an outlaw or a bandit, other than he has actually broken a law, maybe not such a, you know, dangerous one. He doesn't, you know, it's hard for me to picture exactly who this guy is. Yeah. But I, you know, I guess I'm picturing sort of like a lower level crime. And if you are trying to keep, keep a, what you understand to be a fragile peace in the status quo between two peoples, then having a, you know, thief come back into the community is not as dangerous. Yeah. That word in the Greek is lestes gets used in a lot of different ways. One of the ways is along the lines of what you're saying, sort of a, you know, lovable bandit. It also is used by Josephus to describe the revolutionaries who rebel against the Romans in 66 mm. and cause the destruction of the temple, like instigate the ire of Rome. <laughs> That's really different. Really different. <laughs> so one way of reading it is that it's a political revolutionary, like a populist political revolutionary who is anti-Roman. Hmm. That interpretation leads in a whole different direction, Yeah, which is... 
they would rather satisfy the populist anti-Roman sentiment by releasing this political prisoner who maybe is going to stir up physical violence rather than Jesus who is innocent. I don't really know where either one of those interpretations goes. I want to press a little bit, although not not really, but you know, saying they choose this guy instead of Jesus who is innocent. And mm. I understand why you're saying that. Cuz yeah. But I I want to say from their perspective, yeah. Jesus who is dangerous. Yeah, no, that's helpful, Amy. Because Pilate has just declared him innocent is why I said that. Yes, no, I understand. <laughs> like, I understand. No, 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 no but like that. to be like, yeah, but Pilate, is, you know, he's not disinterested in this. I, I appreciate that reminder that there is a reason that is not theoretically not there is a reason that yeah. they have that that the the Jewish leaders are are doing all of this. Yeah, that's and right. it seems like even if even if Barabbas is a political revolutionary who could instigate other kinds of violence or instability. It is very much, it is a kind of, inst- I mean, I don't, I don't know if this is how they would have thought about it, but given all our other conversations about the way that Jesus is really turning on its head all the structures of the world, Barabbas isn't, he's working within the confines that they know. Yes. You know, you fight the empire with violence or you, you know, and, and there, there are ways to get things done, but it's, it is of this world. It is from yeah. this world. But I don't know if the, I feel like I don't, I'm not in the head enough of the Jewish leaders in this text to try to imagine whether they're, whether that's why he seems like less of a threat. I think that's really helpful, Amy. And you know, that back in chapter 11, they had basically said the problem with Jesus is that he wields life yeah. in the face of death. And what are we going to do with that? Yeah. And so and so it is much more familiar to say here's a person who knows how to wield death in the midst yeah, of he's death. He's a good like, fighter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the people mm-hmm. are going to like us because people like populist heroes, right? So th- now they get to control the narrative a little bit. Like yeah. we we got this guy released for you. When you think in terms of the kind of political and sort of human nature dynamics we've been talking about, I I, I think some of that does kind of snap into place. The other the only other place in the Gospel of John where that word lestes is used is in the Good Shepherd text again, where there mm. are bandits and outlaws trying to get under the fence and lead you out. Oh. And they're going to abandon you in the wilderness. Mm, that seems really resonant. If you were going to take that somewhere, where would it, where would it go? Well, just that this is, <laughs> like, this is, this is that guy, you know, yeah. getting released back into the world to lead us astray. Yeah. You know? And if you then connect that with political revolution, though using a violence to overthrow the oppressor, then there mm-hmm. is this kind mm-hmm. of, the, the next step is, so following those who want political revolution against the empire, not political, violent revolution against the mm-hmm. empire, that is being led astray. The way to challenge the empire is through self-giving love. That's, that like is that. radical. It's radical. That's radical. All right, Amy, so Mm. next week we're going to pick up sort of in the next chapter and continue on with this conversation, but we have a pause right here at the end of this text unit to think about what does this say to us in our time? Where do you see connections with today's world? 
What do you what do you want to say about that? I am thinking a lot about that pilot's question, what is truth? Mm-hmm. There is a, a a portion of the morning liturgy in the Jewish tradition that has the word for truth in Hebrew is emet. And it the words in Hebrew are emet atahu rishon, atahu acharon, umi baladecha. In lanu melech, in lanu goel umoshia. So, truth, you are first, you are last, and without you, we have no king, we have no redeemer, mm. we have no savior. And actually, the first time I heard this, I wasn't looking at the text, and I thought they were saying umoshiach at the end or Messiah, which I think fits in with the sort of whole whole idea of this that. Without, I mean, like, yeah, truth is not such an easy thing to say, like, what's true and what's not true. But without holding in the center that there is truth and we must seek it in all its messy complexity and know that we're never going to wrap our head around the whole thing. It is always going to be bigger than us and it's always going to be more complex. But we have nothing without it. There's no, there's no king, there's no redeemer, there's no one to save us, there's nothing. Like until we decide that striving for truth is, is the center. And not unlike the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. In the Jewish tradition, we would say that emet is one of the names for God. So another way to say that like truth is, we don't just mean, you know, the headlines. And I just am really feeling that over these, not just today's headlines, but like many years of headlines at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. That, that we, we have nothing if we are not trying always to figure out what is truth. I love that, Amy. And that's such a beautiful connection between your tradition and my tradition and the similar ideas that get expressed in, in different ways. I appreciate that so much. I, I've been thinking about something similar, but in my way, I've been sort of framing it through empire and the wielding of violence uh, and fear that we've been talking about. And, you know, truth is a complex notion. And I think we do live in a world in which people are just confused about what, like, what is true? Like, I I find this myself when it comes to like, with the, the pandemic is kind of easing up at this moment that we're talking anyway. And but I don't know exactly what that means. And I don't know who to trust to tell me like, okay, well, what does that, what does that mean for me or for my kids? Like, there's just this confusion. And so the, like, say, so what is true? And what Jesus has done in this text is to say, look, what you rely on human beings is violence, fear, and the capacity to wield death or the fear of having death wielded against you. Mm -hmm. That's how you think. Mm-hmm. And what is true is that that is not the way it should be. That's not, the, that's not the way it is at the core, given that God is who we claim God is. Then the truth becomes embodied in this text in the way of Jesus, which is the way of self-giving love, which we saw in the foot washing a couple of weeks ago, love one another as I have loved you. And it's going to be played out again in the crucifixion and the resurrection in a couple of weeks, which is to say, loving one another in the face of death and violence 
to the point that one loses one's life mm -hmm. out of a refusal to be violent, mm -hmm. that is, at the end of the day, what is true. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental truth that makes that make any sense is that life is more powerful than death. So the resurrection says in the Christian tradition that on the other side of this, the greatest power the empire can wield against you is death. And God has defeated that weapon. And so that is what is ultimately true. Self-giving love results in life that is for all, that lifts up people who are less than you or mm -hmm. perceived as less than you societally. And that ultimately, even the power of death that the empire can wield is not as true as the life that comes through God in this text in Jesus Christ. Like, that's the gospel right there, man. <laughs> like, to me, like, if you could figure out how to live that out, you know, we would, we would go a long way toward, toward, a better, toward a better world. No, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I think I've, you know, I think that over the years we have talked before about how much I love the religious imperative, the Christian imperative, and I think the Jewish one too, that our fear of death and bodily harm cannot be the driving factor for all of our decisions in the world. Yeah. And what's been so interesting for me in this text is, is seeing the way that Jesus is trying to equip his disciples to sort of em embolden them in some way. Like, I know y'all need to see that it's going to be okay, you know, and, and, and the Jewish tradition doesn't go there. Like, you don't get mm -hmm. to see that it's okay. Yeah. But you still have to, <laughs> you still have to yeah. live your life in a way that is not totally driven by fear of death and bodily harm. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know how it, lives differently in our heads given our different faiths, but yeah. But I like the place where we overlap. Yeah, me too. One of the things you're making me think about is that, you know, in this text, there is clearly a fundamental incom incompatibility between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome. Mm -hmm. And they, they ought not be able to go together. And one of the things that has happened to my tradition is that we have, in many parts of the world for a long time, kind of become the empire. Like we, mm -hmm. we're the dominant religious culture. And this text seems to be suggesting to me that you can't actually do that. Now you've got fundamentally opposite truths yeah. that you're following. And this yeah. comes down to death and life. And so I think it, I think you and I overlap in our commitments, but our social locations make it resonate differently, I think. Yeah. It's a real challenge to me and to my understanding of my own faith is sort of well-established in the dominant culture. Yeah. All right, we'll continue on with this conversation next time. We're just picking up in the next verse, 19.1 through 16a. And then we're going to pick up <laughs> from there and in 16b we'll the next 16B. time. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, great. We'll take I really enjoy this conversation, Amy, and I will talk to you next week. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible Worm podcast for details. 
Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll continue with Jesus' trial before Pilate as told in John 19, 1-16a. Until then, keep on digging.